chaos comes, it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God, every day is adventure. Welcome back to the Incense Podcast, guys. I'm Sam. And I am Blaine. And this week we Skyped in our friend Dan Allender because it's been a long time since we heard his voice and because I thought a while ago that he could speak with particular clarity to the topic for today. Yeah, which is glory. This is an episode that really should be listened to at half speed. Sometimes when you're talking to Dan Allender, he takes off on these life-changing riffs. But it is actually impossible to grasp the entirety of the first time. But we went into what is it that a person carries that is glorious? What does it mean to behold glory? And then how do we start engaging our own heart in a way that respects the fact we carry glory And that's a part of the restoration of all things. So, lots to be had. Enjoy Dan Allender. Dan, welcome back to the AdSense Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Blaine, Sam, you know, it's a delight to be with you both. So, wherever you wish to go, it will be fun to follow you. Well, this is a a topic that I ended up having a conversation with a friend about several months ago. He was pointing out that we had become guilty of focusing on the need for change, the need for growth, the ways that we're failing, the ways that we could do things better more often than we were focusing on some of the the hope, some of the future, some of the his actual request literally was, can you talk about our glory, please? And I had this moment where I was like, I, I don't know that we could have jumped about it sooner, or maybe that's my personality type that wants to go, yes, that's there, but you don't get it if you don't take a journey to get to it. And that may be my personality. I'm, I'm willing to admit that I could be a bit of a cat. And maybe hiss, a, hiss my way towards a glory. Generous word. Hiss <laughs> my um, way toward glory. I'm, <clears throat> I'm glad that, that, that it has an H and not a P. So. <laughs> yeah, well, depends on the day, I suppose. So, Dan. The ways that you've talked about story, the ways that you've talked and understood community and what what human beings are for, I think is why I wanted to talk to you about this particular topic because I think that there's there's a richness there that we're going to be able to unpack. Um, but to get Anne's sons away from the hot seat, do you think that we are the only ones who are guilty of focusing on the damage or the the need for change or growth or healing? and missing the glory, or does that extend beyond those who are cat-like in their personalities? Oh, I think it is the inevitability of a culture that has for uh, literally for thousands of years been far more oriented toward depravity than toward the reality of human dignity. Uh, And yet, you know, the scriptures are such that you cannot address one without addressing the other. I mean, we're made in the image of God, which is one of the most stunning phrases from Scripture. And yet, as broken, sinful, rebellious, 
people, if we don't have the courage to name our darkness, the shadow of what our own glory reveals, then we don't have the integrity to actually engage beauty. So, you know, when there is a preponderance of a focus on human failure, um, it, it's always in the context of what we were meant to be, which is always the acknowledgement that our glory is phenomenal. And so uh, a phrase that Schaefer used to use, I mean, decades and decades ago is that we are ruined glory, that we have that ruined beauty. And yet the ruin itself is made different because of the fullness and the complete work of Jesus on our behalf. So you have to have language that holds beauty and brokenness together. Otherwise, you're going to slip off one side of the horse and end up literally doing great harm to yourself. The phrase you start with, we are made in the image of God, is the tree in every person's front yard that who sees it anymore? Uh, you, you, you could basically just say, you know, we, we flab shab my rab shab. And it goes like, yep, and we're moving on. Uh, it's, you know, it's meaninglessness that was followed by familiarity that was followed by even more meaninglessness um, in most cases. What about that reality is, uh, like, inspires the kind of awe that you just spoke with? Well, I, I think we so often have used that phrase, the image of God, but then we don't actually press it to the reality that I am the face of God to you two men right now. I mean, if you looked at one another, you're looking at me. But if you look at a human face, you are seeing the face of God. That's so staggering that you want to go, no, 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 too much, just too much, too extreme. But the fact is, my face uniquely, more so than any part of my body, reveals something of my personhood, my personality. And in that, I am making something known, not only about me, but the person, the creator who made me. So when we start saying, as, as men who are married, you are the face of God to your your wives, to your children. I think it it ups the ante when we say the word, the image of God. So, I mean, when you look at my Hungarian Jewish face, you're seeing something about the nature of God. Now, thank God I don't reveal all of God. Uh, we need humanity to reveal God, and God is not fully revealed through every human being, past, present, and future. He is, in one sense, all of that and beyond it. But you can't know God unless you know Jesus. You can't know God unless you engage the human face. So the personhood of our being is, in one sense, most richly revealed through the face. Uh, a lovely philosopher by the name of Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, brought this I think in many ways to the focus in a way that sadly Christian uh, theologians just didn't do quite in the same way, to be able to say every face you meet, you bear some obligation to because that face calls you into a relationship where you are in one sense endowed with gifts to be able to give, but also needs to be able to receive. So in that sense, mutuality is what reveals glory. Somehow the nature of who we are, that I, I have the capacity to give, 
but I also have the need to receive. And in that interplay, uh, we're revealing something about God who is independent, who needs no one, and yet who has chosen to be in relationship with us in a way in which he literally needs us. So I know it's paradox. I know it's almost contradiction to say he needs no one. He needs you. Um, well, uh, that's part of God's transcendence, but also his imminence, that we have to speak in a language that just, in one sense, almost burps with its own inconsistency. And if we can do that and still retain both a sense of logic and, and meaning, then we're closer to the fact that every human being, every, I mean, I, I walk from the school that I teach at to the ferry to get to my home, and I pass by at least 20 homeless men and women whom I see pretty much regularly because I walk that route. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. Every one of those faces reveals something about being made in the image of God. And our lack of comfortability with heartache, with struggle, keeps us from actually being able to look at the face and know there is something if I had the privilege to know you beyond just seeing you, I would know God better if I had those moments with you. Oh, that's up the Annie even more. I don't have to just be with a homeless person or passing by someone that's panhandling for me not to want to make eye contact. I can be in a coffee shop and everyone's looking at their shoes. Like it, those, it, there's this difficulty in an elevator to look around the room and oh, make eye contact. Particularly. I mean, like, it's so bizarre. You know, I, I, I walked into an elevator uh, because a friend made a bet that I wouldn't speak or sing. Uh, and I walked into this elevator because I knew I was going to get $10 if I did something. I just, I walked in and just went, hi, y'all. Right. And you were and a crazy I, person for oh, doing that. I mean, the look, the look on the faces, they could not wait to go down the nine floors that we were going to go. And uh, literally, I, I could Gosh. feel them all huddling up. I mean, nobody would look. No one would respond. We just don't know what to do with the human face. Mm. Okay. Especially a bizarre one. There's a, there's a part of this conversation that is the individual's particular glory and seeing our uniqueness that I would love to spend some time in in a minute but I don't want to shift there that quickly because we are spending time here with observing the other face. Um, you have talked in the past about the purpose of human beings th to be able to witness to each other's lives. Can you unfold some of the, the need for others' participation in our glory, for the glory to truly be seen and carried? Well, I, I think... In one sense, our engagement with one another is meant to evoke or provoke worship. And so in that sense, I, I think of worship from the Romans 1, 18 and following passage as this intersection of gratitude and awe, a sense that w when I'm with the two of you, um, you know, and I, I prefer to be face to face, even though I get something of your faces as we use technology to digitally see each other. But the fact is that I, I, I'm in awe of the two of you. 
Uh, I love your writings. I love how you think. I love how you play. I love being with you guys. Uh, and in that sense, there's just awe, a sense of wonder, especially, I mean, I think of a hundred different times where the two of you are riffing. And the... It, Depth, playfulness, the capacity, uh, the mindfulness, uh, all that to say, isn't there a sense of wow, of being in one another's presence with that? And the, wow. and the specificity is so good here, Dan, that it's not just I'm whitewashing humanity with you are the face of God, therefore you are a wow, but like specifically, uniquely, what is it that's bringing the awe? This, this is really right. good. And, and give me two minutes with almost anyone, and I will come close to more of that specificity. Um, I, I won't let the abstraction generalities, in one sense, bind us to an aloofness. I, I, I need the dirt, and I don't mean by that just foul. I, I need the humus, the humility of, of, of our souls to be together. But in that, when we are, when that awe of being in the presence of someone greater than me, that's what awe is. It's being in the presence of the two of you, knowing that you are greater than me. And then I get to play with you. And that brings delight, that sense of, oh, yes, yes, gratitude. So I think if you can hold those two concepts of we need awe, we need gratitude. And because that's what our hearts were made for. And, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I mean, one of the things that stunned me about my wife after 42 years of marriage is how she greets me. I don't wake up generally warm to the day. Uh, uh, and but the way the way she speaks, the way she uses particular words of endearment, like it just changes my heart at least a bit to what enters the day. I, I'm in awe of her generosity. So grateful I get to be married to her. So worship, that sense of awe and gratitude, that's meant to be this ongoing process of, of play together. Whether we're in a relationship with a person for an hour on a plane uh, or a 42-year marriage so far, we're meant to have that level of honor and delight in relationship with one another. And that is a taste of beauty. That's a taste of the glory of the other. Because what makes you each awesome, what makes you both delightful, um, there's overlap. You know, there are f familial categories, given the nature of that you're both eldridges. But there's such differences between the two of you. And in that distinction, yet similarity, our hearts are drawn, meant to be drawn, to the reality of, of God is one and many. Uh, God is God is God, but God is revealed as three persons. And so in that sense, our diversity, our similarity, all of our relationships are meant somehow to take us back into a engagement with the goodness of God. And the fact that you you have similarities, dissimilarities, uniquenesses, that's part of the joy of being in relationship with the two of you is that notion of your distinctions create so much potential intrigue, just plain intrigue. So how fun that the two of you are who you are and who you're not. You know, sometimes it's good that we've actually rigged our studio to show our faces to, you know, it has video capability and kind of wondering, wow, that it could be cool, but I 
am kind of relieved right now that in the course of some of this, that all of our facial expressions are entirely up to your imagination. Uh, we talk about envy. We talk about hatred. We recently did a podcast on loneliness that kind of dove into the territory of one of the reasons you don't know your glory is that you're meant to learn it through the people around you and they're not telling you. They're choosing to resent you instead. Um, yes. and, but part of bearing glory is being someone who loves witnessing glory. And I, so I'm wondering, how do you do that? In the examples you just shared of you're seeing a person and it's bringing you to gratitude and awe, uh, it could also, because it's ultimately uh, holding out the goodness of God to you. Mm-hmm. It's possible that beholding someone's glory can raise an incredible level of resentment about the way that God has chosen to build his universe and questions about his character and nature. So what are the kinds of things that let you or let a person enjoy glory in others? Well, it's strange. Remember, I'm I'm sort of a proto-Calvinist. Um, you know, I'm, I, at times I think I'm a one-point Calvinist or maybe a half a point Calvinist. But the bottom line is, I, I know what I deserve. I, I know what a mess my life is, and I know that in so many ways, the gifting of my life has come through so much of my own failure that really, truly has been forgiven. So when I look at people who have more gifts than me, I, I, I don't look at it and go, I want that. I think, oh my God, if I had what they had, I'd have screwed up even more. Or on the other hand, with what I have had, I've screwed up more than others who have not had to bear some of that. So in some ways, envy, at least partially, gets addressed when we're very aware that to bear more, I'm glad I don't bear more. I'm glad I'm not given more stages to be on than I already am. And I've been privileged to be on big stages. And it really isn't that much fun. It really isn't that glorious. It isn't that much life-giving. And so in one sense, I grieve for people who don't have some level of success because they still think that it will provide them with something that they currently don't have. So I think on one hand, knowing what I've been forgiven for, but also, and this is where I I don't know how to well without sounding very arrogant, but I've been privileged to hang out with incredibly bright, brilliant, gifted people, um, you know, from the realm of music to the realm of thought, philosophy, theology, psychology. And I get to play and I'm respected enough that, you know, my silly ideas aren't entirely ignored. But when you begin to have the opportunity to be with like-minded peers, I think what generally happens is that you see how you get bigger and more glorious by being with people who honor you and call you forth to become even better. So in one sense, when I'm with people who are so much more gifted, I feel like they let me play at their level. And in which case, then I just get this joy of becoming more of who I didn't even know that I had the capacity to be. So I think that's like when I started reading Wittgenstein, and I just couldn't understand 
literally, practically a sentence or two, and sitting with somebody who really did understand, I didn't resent their knowledge. I just felt like I was being taken into a world I couldn't see until they began to allow me to, in one sense, benefit from their glory. So I think when you begin to enjoy glory, your own glory grows. And so if you want glory, part of it is participate where you are, with whom you're with, in a way that honors and brings delight and brings awe and honor to one another. And you'll find that their glory grows, your glory grows. And in one sense, as it should be, it's really not about our glory. It's about his glory that he bestows to us and then lets us play in that sandbox as long as we want to with the toys that he gives us. I just, I still can't believe that I'm a Christian. I can't believe that I get to talk about the things of God in a way that actually I think, oh, that was a sentence I need to think about. So I I think if it may seem strange to put it this way, there are times where I'll say something and I'll think, wow, you didn't have enough wisdom to say that, but you said it. Now you need to think about that's really good. You need to follow that thought up. So I think there's even a place to be in awe of yourself and awe and delighted in the creature that he's made you to be. But if it's not connected to relationships, then it will become absorptive. And ultimately, what generally gets used as a key word here is narcissistic. All right. This is this is so good. And it's the second time so far that we've gotten close to looking too long at the sun that I feel myself pulling away. The first was the ability to actually see the face of God in other human beings. And the longer I sit with that, the more blind I get. This one is the second moment of you do have this glory and it will continue to unfold and it will be seen by others and it can go to new heights. And I feel myself doing that thing again of like, ah, I'm, I'm, I can't look that long at it. And I can hear the listener whose story goes something like, my glory has been marred or my glory has been stolen or my glory has been lost. And all this is evoking is pain and wistfulness. Um, Personally, I do not believe that that can be the case. I don't believe that it can be stolen forever. I don't think that's what the gospel says. So I'm going to begin there as the the shift into the individual story, the shift into um, for the people that have looked too long at the damage and missed the gifts they have or the glory they have that's unique. Um, where would you begin for that person? Where would you begin for the person who said it's, it's been marred, stolen? Yeah, I, I, I guess I start with Revelation chapter five, uh, and that is the image of of Jesus as the Lamb of God slaughtered, um, but also the ruling King, and both images are clear in that that chapter. But it, it makes it very clear that Jesus enters into his glorification, sitting at the right hand of the Father, with still the wounds of the cross. So that. You you know, I will bear the marks of past sexual abuse for the rest of my life and into eternity. But here it is beautiful. What evil meant for harm, God intends to create a beauty. And again, you have that lovely Isaiah passage of ashes for beauty. Well, again, even if it's a phrase used and is on too many 
napkins and I don't know, bumper stickers, you know, you just have to go, no, 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 I got to reclaim this. My shit is stunningly beautiful. That my ashes, my body's burning. There is something within that that allows you a defiance. And that's what I mean by to own one's own beauty and the marred and the harm and the stolen parts. I love the reality, uh, as John talks about, it will all one day be restored. But in the restoration, we will still bear the marks of that crucifixion, the harm that we endured. And I don't know how it's both stunningly beautiful and also equally darkly heartbreaking. And yet within that, somehow in the interplay of those two forces, crucifixion, resurrection, there's a kind of beauty that I I, like, I I love Picasso, but I, I love Chagall more so because of the playfulness within the realm of how he paints, but he paints chaos. He paints the fact that something of human love will endure and rise. So as you begin to find artists, uh, Van Gogh has been probably as important to my life as uh, my early connections with Christians who shared the gospel. I think I came to Christ in part because of the work of Van Gogh. You know, we need artists. We need painters. We need poets. We need people who, in one sense, allow beauty to disturb the commonplace, the norm, the status quo, to create desire and to expose, in many ways, the darkness of what's in us and around us. So all that to say, as long as I'm willing to go, I have been robbed. But in that, evil will never win if I'm able to see in the harm the work of how he's not only restoring, but how he equipped me and gifted me to reveal something of his glory, even in the midst of it. So I look back to, you know, years of being a drug dealer, years of harm of other human beings. Uh, I'm not proud of that. Of course not. I, 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 in many ways, I look back to that period of my life and just live in a sense of wonder that I'm alive. But in that, it actually taught me how to do fundraising. Um, you know, drug dealers don't just get money. I, I had to go to lawyers, doctors, and Indian chiefs, offering them 18% interest on the return of their money. So some of the gifting I have in raising money for the school I work with came in part because I did that as a 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old kid who's trying to, in one sense, keep his life and job alive. The risks that I have taken in my life, a lot of it comes from the heartache of deciding I probably will not live beyond 22, 23. Well, I'm grateful that God has given me a longer life. But many of those moments of danger was, at least in part, out of the heartache of I didn't want to live. So the fact that God uses our harm to create glory, but not just for his glory— but for our own glory and for the glory of those who get to be with us and we with them, it's enough to just make my head spin around and around at the thought of he takes cacophony and he literally turns it into a symphony of glory. This is a riff currently in the Anson's office. Um, and the various place you're talking about returning to that we are made in the image of God is remarkable and something that needs to be recovered and inside, uh, like being made in the image of God, there's 
questions surrounding every word in that sentence, but one that feels significant is God. And so there's kind of been this, okay, what kind of being, what do we know about the being who God is? And there's sort of all these, you know, um, is God predominantly rational or desiring? And how do those things, is God predominantly uh, communal or atomic? And how do those work together? And you can kind of go into, but you also go, okay, so you're revealing God. God is predominantly revealed in Jesus. If you're made in the image of God, you're revealing something of the crucifixion to the world. Yes. And the God who rises um, with scars still in his body, um, although like as though that were com- necessary in the restored body of Jesus, which sort of has um, authority over space and time and just to go, no, it didn't have to be scarred. There was something there in that uh, you're revealing the being who was crucified in rose with wounds and is putting on display this thing where you get into the territory and you say head spinning. It's like, yeah, that's really kind of head spinning of it, you're not calling um, devastation glorious, but are saying that there is a way in which like the wounds a person carries get rolled up into their depiction of God in such a way that the end result is actually glorious. Am I near the mark here? Oh, I think it's a lovely way you're putting it because I'm never going to say that God caused those scars to come so that I can be more glorious or that his glory is going to be made more known. But what I can say is he chooses somehow to infiltrate every wound, not only to heal, but in one sense, to imagine defiantly how that wound can actually be used against the one who brought that harm. So in that sense, he's giving me power back. He's giving me privilege back and play back. And so all that, I just, you know, as I'm aging, reflecting now more and more on my life, And sitting back and going, I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how I got to this spot. But whatever it was that allowed me to get to this spot, I'm gifted in certain ways. I'm bright in certain ways. But that's just not enough to have explained how I've been privileged to be in the the world that I'm in. I just say, oh, my God, you are good. Now, my dear friend Melanie, who's currently in the hospital after – tragically mishandled operation by medical professionals. And I'm going, Jesus, Jesus, what are you doing in this beautiful woman's life? So the fact that he gives me the opportunity to question him, doubt him, be angry at him while still holding the reality that I love him and I trust him. And I don't know what he's doing in my friend's life, but I do know this. It is for good even if I cannot see it, and even if he calls me to, in one sense, pound the table on her behalf, what kind of God allows that? It is so foreign to any religious you know, realm that this God would die on a cross, the most humiliating, shameful way to die beyond just painful. Um, this is the announcement of the power of the kingdom of God 
a dead God on a cross. I mean, it's such a reversal that what we have to say is so often what we think is beautiful, glorious, um, pales in comparison to the reality of the paradox and the mystery of his goodness on our behalf. That's what I live with. Um, and that's why I love the Cohen brothers, uh, because they somehow speak of darkness and yet the paradox of life. It's why I love Best in Show, because it's ridiculous. And yet within it, it tells a really dear story. So when we're able to hold complexity, I think we're able to hold more of absurd within the context of even deeper meaning, which is something that's very hard to do without either turning to cynicism on one side or a form of naivete and idealism on the other. So deeper into specificity, um, I'm finding myself wanting to go beyond just this piece about Jesus and the wounds is very helpful because the glory of God can feel very whitewashy, right? It can feel very like you have value because you are a son or a daughter of God. And how many times that's been thrown as like an excuse or a bone or as truly a whitewash of now we're all just sort of in, in robes and the same. And there's a loss of distinctness. Your story gets rolled up and not a beautiful way and not a kind or even way that's being a witness. So as I come back to specificity and, and glory, um, I found in some stories of conversations I've had with guys who are unaware of potential callings of their lives or, or potential um, ways they are meant to be glorious, that the assault against them in their story over years acts a bit like a breadcrumb trail. Um, if you If you're willing to follow the enemy's assault as also a way out of it. And it can feel unkind to be like, you know, actually what we need to do is we need to sit. This is why I get accused of being more cat-like because I do want to go like, okay, wait, 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 what you think that you are never meant for relationship or community. And that's, that's a massive theme of your life. That is this assault over and over again. And there's, there's probably that wants to go, there's a person who doesn't see their glory because they feel like it's been, they know what it was or is, and it's been marred. And I think spoken beautifully to that of like, no, 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 that, that wasn't meant by God, but what he's going to do is going to be glorious with it. Then there's a kind of person who has no idea because they're, they can't, they don't even see the breadcrumbs yet. They, they just, all they feel is the effect of it. Um, and so for the person who's listening going, I don't want to just be glorious because I am a son or a daughter and I don't want just the whitewash. Everybody gets this particular ticket feel, but I have no idea. All I feel are unmet longings and ways that have felt thwarted, but I don't see the connection there. Like what would you, what do you want to throw or have that particular person think about as they are trying to find what their glory or, or calling or a particular gift they might be able to bring is? Well, I, I, my son was living at one point in Denver and in a house with about three or four guys. And the guy in the basement was a gamer. And, you know, he would play games for 20 some hours, 30 hours, crash, you know, do all sorts of drinks to be able to get back. And, you know, and I, I said, well, I'd like to meet him. And, and my son said, oh, no, you don't. 
And I said, no, I'd like to meet him. He said, well, first of all, the smell will kill you when you go down there. Like he doesn't bathe for days upon days. You're not going to want to go down. And it was like, hey, I've smelled some awful stuff. I can do it for even 10 minutes. So he basically shouted down and said, you know, Joseph, my dad's coming down. Don't be weird. Uh, and I went down and hung out with Joseph for about an hour. And I mean, it barely looked at me, kept playing games. And, you know, two things I said to him was, you obviously have an immense gift of concentration for you to be able to focus even the presence of somebody you've never met before on this process of a game means that you have the ability to focus on things. Have you always had that? And I think it was the first time anyone's ever spoken well of his gaming through the, the means of concentration. And he sort of looked at me with a look like, are you being cynical? And, you know, I just, I, I no. Uh, and he goes, yeah, yeah, like I have ADD. And I have hyperfocus ADD. So I can do this for days. And I said, you know what? So do I. I have hyperfocus ADD. Uh, I said, were you diagnosed? He goes, no, no, I just read about it. I said, same. Uh, and, and so uh, there's a bridge with humanity. To any human being, there are bridges. And as soon as you find a bridge, that allows you to name something of their glory, people are captured. I mean, we are all dying to be read, dying to be seen, dying to have somebody actually bring honor and delight. And so after, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about ADD and about the effects. And I said, it creates a massive amount of loneliness when you can concentrate for hours, hours. I said, I can read a book for 12 hours in a row. Uh, and and uh, other than biologic reasons, not be disrupted in that process. He looked at me and he goes, what do you know about loneliness? You're married, you've got children. All right, he's already beginning to bring, in many ways, his life against my life. And I said, yeah, that's a really tough question. Uh, and I don't really have an answer other than to say, there are times I'm very lonely with everyone, including my children, including my wife in part because my mind seems to work very differently than other minds that are more, shall we say, quote unquote, normal. And he laughed. So I, all I'm saying is there's a bridge everywhere. Find glory in another. Find glory in yourself and then be curious. How did it come about? How did this actually come about? It's the interplay of creation, but also desecration. Uh, creations made you to have certain gifts and qualities, but the fact we live in a world that degrades, desecrates, harms, steals, that wounding has actually been part of shaping how you live in the world. Can we come to name that even in that, oh yeah, there's brokenness, but there's something stunningly, be I had a lovely conversation. After about 20 minutes, I didn't need to vomit and uh, got used to the smell and Joseph and I, the next several times, uh, he will, he looked forward to being with me because I was at least one human being that honored the uniqueness of his gifting. I, I, you're back to the burden we bear as a community to see it in each other. Like that's actually very kind to say, to give a story where you saw it in someone else rather than be like, well, for the person that can't find those breadcrumbs, I would begin prodding your own pain. And probably underneath that pain, you might find, it's like just- Another layer of pain. And, and beneath the pain is more pain. And once you push through that blinding, searing pain, 
you might pass. There's out. more onion to peel. <laughs> exactly. Um, I just I'm thinking about like a room of people. I'm thinking actually about your party for your daughter. Um, and I think about the kind of person that human beings are drawn to. They're drawn to someone that is freely giving with compliments. Someone that sees and can name what feels maybe stupid or obvious, but we want it to be said. We want it like, I love that you thought of this. I love that they have the ability to see. Um, I, I almost, can you just encourage me for a second here, Dan, to be willing to say the thing to the person that may seem obvious? Because I think as you're naming the story with a gamer, that feels like a ridiculous thing to say. You obviously have the ability to concentrate very well. 99% of people would be saying that with a F you, I'm leaving now, posture, but you're willing to say what feels obvious with kindness. How do we do that? Well, you, brilliantly, you just said it. And that is, I, I'm intrigued by people. And if you're not intrigued by people and the fact that, you know, like everyone really is this like great hunt, this great search for the glories that exist within them. And it is like digging in a field sometimes a thousand holes before you find. But a lot of time, digging holes is a very common, you know, put your foot on the shovel, push it down in, pick it back up. And as long as you're not needing to look smart um, or even helpful. I mean, I gave up as a therapist trying to help anybody after about a year because everyone I tried to help felt patronized uh, and eventually end up not wanting to see me. And you, you eventually you go, that's not the task of any of us. I can't help anybody. But what I can do is be part of naming something of the wild, wild glory that is written into every human being. So from that standpoint, I think it's just literally developing an eye for beauty and learning how to speak to it where when I, you know, if I got a remark from Joseph, like, yeah, well, duh, uh, you know, be like, well, how did you come to do this? Like, were you born with the ability to concentrate? You know, and he began to actually tell stories of what it was like to be in school where he focused on something, but the teacher moved from math to this, to this, to this. Understand that's how good so-called education occurs. But for somebody like me, that is hyper-focused ADD, once I get onto an idea or a thought, like I want to stay there for hours. So you can imagine school sucked for someone like me. I just don't make those kinds of transitions as easily as others do. So we had something not only in common, but we had something that we could actually say, we have been in a position to not only know goodness through what we have, but heartache. So if you can hold goodness and heartache together, then I, I think most people are touched by that uh, in a way that mere compliments or mere statements of, yeah, it really sucks, doesn't it? That doesn't help. It just doesn't take anyone anywhere. Mm. And it, part of your question, Sam, and the response really does assume, again, that people don't really know very much about their glory. It is discovered relationally. Participating in that discovery can be really fun. There's a piece here in your conversation with Joseph that I, I think of reading uh, Paralandra for the first time and C.S. Lewis's depiction of evil. And there's, this, there's a really 
important piece here, which is that uh, evil is not creative or imaginative. Um, it is it is debasing, um, violating, and uh, so you're looking at not the occupation you would hope for for a guy who can really focus. And yet, the focus is still glory. It's not like your mind has been corrupted into an instrument that can pay attention and go, I'm, uh, evil is not like that. It doesn't. Um, and there's, I think there's an interesting story here. So uh, early on in college and was with some people who were interested in learning to hear the voice of God more and went, okay, um, here's a really easy thing we can do is uh, – we're going to sit together and, you know, establish some rules for the environment. But this is something, you know, I've done in other settings. And we're going to, someone's going to think of a person, not say who it is. And then every, without knowing, everyone's just going to ask, like, God, how do you see that person? And begin to go, what do you pay attention to? What do you hear? What is it? Um, and then at the end, you can either say who it is or not. And we'll just pray for that person. Well, someone chose someone and we go around and the theme that emerged was pretty remarkable of, oh, this is a person whose gift is language and perception. Like this is someone who uh, sees uniquely the human soul. And so we get to the end and we're like, who is it? And they were like a little bit shocked and like, well, I picked Joseph Coney. Um, and it went to, oh my gosh, of course he's able to do, I mean, that was 2010. So you're like, oh, at the, that is his heyday in being able to, um, in a corrupt form, use language brilliantly and understand the human soul to a level of ma manipulation that few people are capable of, and yet to go, that it was seen as like, um, evil is not creative. That capacity was not bestowed by evil, but it's being yes. used unto evil. And so there's a really interesting thing in like beholding each other that... Uh, even in people who are pretty broken and hostile and angry. So everybody? <laughs> that you can look and begin to uncover the threads. Like you can see uh, a phrase from a writer, like the future glory self of a person and go, yes. wow, um, really unkind um, employer. You know, if, I, if we were asking questions in the way you did, it'd be like, where did you learn to use language with the precision that you did. Like, how do you know exactly where to hurt all your employees? Like, actually, those things were not bestowed by Satan. Those capacities no. were bestowed by God. Indeed. And, it's, and it, notice, though, that when you're around somebody who bears their own beauty, you cannot help but participate. And I think that goes back to what you were saying, Sam, that it is communal. And and not only that, but, you know, when I'm with, you know, with you two, with your dad, with your mom, with Luke, I find myself writing better in the next day or two. I find my thoughts deeper, richer, and moving in other directions. So you find that beauty creates a desire for beauty and a desire not only to behold it and take it in, but to participate and actually become one that helps shape and form greater beauty for the world around us. So that sense of take in and give back, how beauty 
just the nature of how glory captures us with that sense of depth and gravitas and yet playfulness and life and light, all that becomes how I want to play ping pong. You know, this isn't just deep stuff. It's I want to play ping pong. So I watch occasionally a YouTube to learn how to hit with a, a you know, a Chinese uh, grip. I don't do that, but I, I, I want to play with more glory. I want to be able to fly fish with more glory. I mean, one of the bucket lists of my life is I, I want to be part of field dressing an animal uh, with your dad at some point. I don't even have to shoot it. I just want to see and be part of taking death um, and turning it into a form of life. You know, those kinds of things, those are bucket lists. I, you know, I don't want to go to Istanbul. I don't want to trek into the hinterland. I, I want to participate in beauty and glory more deeply with my own and other friends. And so that's that's where hu- the hunger for beauty is so resonant within us. Nobody can escape it. And what we're doing in almost every regard, even dark, evil things that we may end up doing often has beauty at the core of it that we're trying to escape even by the harm itself. When we talk about glory and beauty, uh, I don't think you have to look very far than what you've created in your magazine. Um, not only in terms of what was online, but now in the print version, uh, you know, the writing, the graphics, the photography, the, it, it's just, it's beauty. And so you have to ask, how is it that you have come as individuals, uh, as a corporate world uh, and sons? How have you come to love beauty and how has it transformed your life and what does it cost you? Because when you create the kind of beauty you both have done, it it actually ups the ante of how will you keep creating beauty? And that sense of, you know, if you feel pressure with regard to beauty, it's going to eventually kill you if you understand that you can't help but create beauty because you're both beautiful then it allows you to simply be yourself doing what you do knowing that yes it can be edited it can be perfected it can be grown but you too can't help but create beauty and it's part of why i love you and why i love being part of anything that you do Wow, thank you very much. <laughs> awesome. It's our like awkward receiving that gift, Dan. Yeah, thank, thank you. you.